0: Good morning, church. If there's any good that comes out of this morning, it will not be because of my strength, but will be out of the strength of the Savior to whom we look. And I don't know if Graham could have picked more songs that could have made your pastor cry than this morning. <laughs> Is it possible for every song to mean so much in the gospel to be so true that good stuff. I want to lighten the mood a bit um, as I uh, was trying to reminisce on other faux pas that were happening at weddings. These will help me in this moment, and they will probably lighten the mood for you a little bit. Um, but but uh, being a pastor, a youth pastor for a season and a pastor of a young church for a season, it's given me the opportunity to do many weddings, very few funerals. And so, uh, when I was thinking about examples of faux pas at weddings, I had to be careful because as I'm looking out uh, at many of you, I have done your wedding. And it would not be the place to share the faux pas that happened at your wedding uh, that you may or may not know about. But I remember, uh, I mean, you could talk to my friends who were at uh, my wedding when a song that would make every one of you blush began playing at our reception because the DJ whom we chose was sick and they sent their family member in our place to play a list of songs that we had not chosen. And my groomsman running to the DJ de- table saying, you have to stop playing that song. No, this is a good song. No, you have to. I mean, they had my back at that moment. Uh, I remember another one where uh, this, uh, this w- just amazing bride, Um, chose to have an outdoor summer wedding, and it was just so well-planned, and and it was on the lakeside, and it was just beautiful, and um, it looked by the end of the sermon and, and the wedding ceremony when I was done that I had actually swam in the lake. I was sweating through my coat, through everything that I had on standing in front of all of these people, The worst part was, though, as I'm standing before you in the middle of the groom's side and the bride's side, and all of these bridesmaids and groomsmen standing before me, the only thing I could focus on uh, was this fly uh, that would not leave me alone. And the bride and the groom were also looking at this fly that would not leave me alone. And and for the entire time, he couldn't do this number in the midst of the ceremony the entire time. And so at one point, I was fly on the nose, still going, and had to continue to press on. The the worst moment ever in a wedding. I was glad to read this text to realize that faux pas uh, don't just happen around the weddings that I'm at, but they have happened for thousands of years. And this faux pas is actually a lot uh, more significant than any of those other ones. I-, I wish I had the story to be able to tell you that in that moment as I prayed at that wedding that the Lord blew a wind and drove the flies away, but He didn't. Uh, but we made it through that that wedding, that, that moment. But this wedding that we uh, heard read by uh, Beth in John chapter 2 verses 1-12, through uh, we happen to come upon a a faux pas uh, that is much more significant, if you will. Do you see what I did there? Significant. Significant. uh, Because Jesus does a sign at this wedding, and this sign uh, brings all the significance to this wedding. The wedding is not significant because of uh, the groom or the bride. Notice they're not even mentioned in this story. Uh, But it is Christ who is highlighted, Christ who does a sign, and and this sign which brings about belief uh, in His disciples. This is uh, my aim and argument for you to take home today, that you would know this, that only Jesus, Savior, Creator, Messiah, can make us pure, give us faith, and restore our joy. Excuse me. Only Jesus, Savior, Creator, Messiah can make us pure, give us faith, and restore our joy. In John chapter 2, verse 1, if you'll look with me in the text, it should be on page 833 or 834 on the, the Bible underneath your chair if you want to turn there with me. If you didn't bring your own Bible, I'd love for you to read this story with me. It says, On the third day... If you've been with us the past few weeks at least, you've probably remembered me highlighting and noting the fact that John has been telling the story up to this point with a series of next days. He, uh, see, we see the first, one, the first day coming in 19 through 28. Verse 29 though is the next day. Verse 35, the next day. Verse 43, the next day. Now in chapter 2, verse 1, we see that this is the third day, that being the third day after the previous paragraph, which makes this the seventh day. But more on that to come. And it was on this third day that there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. At this wedding uh, that was in Cana of Galilee, it was hosted in the town of uh, um, Nathanael's hometown. Nathanael coming from the previous paragraph. We know this from uh, John chapter 21 verse 2. And this Cana in Galilee may just seem like an insignificant detail, but it's significant in fact. Uh, We see that John tells this little story with Uh, a mention of the wedding being at Cana in Galilee, but notice all the way in verse 11, which really is the, uh, the thrust of our passage this morning. Notice that in verse 11 it says this, the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee. I mean, you might have told that once if it was just a simple detail, but if it meant something more than just a simple detail, you would probably tell it twice. And John here, who is writing this entire book, the the book of John, the Gospel of John, is writing it so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ and have life in His name. And so the fact that the wedding is at Cana is actually good news to you and me, but more on that later. Uh, The mother, it says, of Jesus happened to be there as well. Later, we learned that Jesus's brothers were there too. So the fact that Jesus, His mother and His brothers, as well as Jesus and His disciples were all there, likely means that this is some family event, some close friend uh, wedding uh, of that close friend. Uh, it, it wasn't just that they happened to be there, but the fact that Mary... Gets in, uh, is involved and wants Jesus to be involved means that it's probably someone close to them that they're attending this wedding together with. And we have to realize uh, the fact that Jesus being at this wedding is significant in and of itself. Um, in the Bible, as I open up all of my wedding ceremonies uh, we, we find that God and the Bible give such worth and importance to marriage when we read through the Scriptures. Uh, we see this in Genesis, Genesis chapter 1 and 2, when God creates man and woman, male and female, and he brings them <coughs> together for one another to be one flesh, that a man should leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. We read through the rest of the Old Testament, and we see imagery that um, God is the groom of His bride, Israel. We see an entire book in the middle of our Bibles, Song of Solomon, that is devoted to the relationship between a man and a woman in marriage. And here, Jesus does His first miracle at a wedding, and I don't think it's just by chance. Then you continue on through your New Testament. You find that the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, uh, and, and most of the New Testament writers, um, they use the relationship between a husband and a wife to illustrate the relationship between Christ and his church. And then, when you get to the end of the, the, the Bible, in the book of Revelation, we see that the story ends with a wedding of Christ and his church at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so, Jesus showing up at this wedding, doing the first of his signs at a wedding is not insignificant. It is significant. It shows us the, the wealth of importance that God has uh, put into the union of a man and a woman in marriage. And, and I would be remiss to not encourage those of you who are married to invest in this significant relationship in your life. For it displays the gospel to all around you. uh, To give of yourselves to one another like Christ gave to the church. To serve one another like Christ served the church as we'll see in this passage. To those of you who uh, have yet to be married and long to be married, that you would wait uh, till you find a spouse who would be willing to love you like Christ loved the church. And to prepare yourself as the bride of Christ is being prepared for the day that He will one day be reunited with His bride at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Marriage is significant, and the fact that Jesus is at this wedding proves that. But there's the faux pas that we see happen when the mother of Jesus speaks to Jesus and says to Him, they have no wine. Now, a little bit about weddings in the first century. Uh, one of my friends who has uh, four daughters uh, would love this fact that the weddings were more likely uh, expensed by the groom's side rather than the bride's side. Uh, I am in favor of the current uh, culture uh, with my Uh, Four boys and one girl. Um, Nevertheless, this would have, uh, the fact that there was no wine was a faux pas on the groom and the groom's side, who would have prepared a feast full of good food and good wine for potentially a week, having guests from out of town traveling in, and they couldn't just fly in and fly out. No, they were donkeying in and donkeying out, and they would have been there for a while. And so they would have had a long feast uh, with much food and much wine. And yet, running out of wine uh, would have been significant for them in that moment. Uh, to us, uh, you know, in my experience, sometimes wine is served, sometimes it's not. Sometimes champagne is served, sometimes it's not. Some, that it doesn't seem to be as significant in our culture, so we have to understand what that would mean. But something that I've seen at every wedding is a cake. And imagine on that day when uh, one of our um, husbands and wives come together as one, and we get to the reception where they're supposed to cut the cake, and the cake doesn't show up. Right, Morgan? (laughs) As a baker of several cakes of weddings in this room, uh, imagine that cake not show up. And everyone whispering and murmuring, oh my gosh, can you believe they forgot the cake? I mean, that's like the most important part. They're supposed to cut the cake. They're supposed to feed it. They're supposed to smush the cake in their face. They're supposed to, this is supposed to be a, a picture of the union of man and a woman somehow, far from a biblical illustration, but uh, one that we think means a lot and we want to encapture on our Instagram, Instagram reel. But this, imagine that kind of situation. And so, Jesus comes, uh, Mary comes to Jesus and says, there's no wine. Now, the context of this helps us to realize what Mary is trying to say at that point. I don't think Mary's just saying to Jesus, who happens to be in the wine line, like, hey, they ran out of wine, so you just, you just don't want to… Don't stay in line. Don't waste your time. There's no more at the end. It's like they're out of shrimp at the end of the buffet. It's like not just info for her at that moment. Um, and I don't think that Mary's like, Jesus, pull out a trick. I, I need you to do a sign in this moment because the Apostle John says, no, this is the first sign. It's not as if Jesus was miracle boy when he grew up as a teenager and pulling out signs and tricks at different times to one-up his classmates. This was the first. I don't think Mary went to Jesus saying, I need you to do a miracle now because she's seen them in the past. I think she went to her oldest son and said, we need some help. You've been taking care. Joseph's never on the scene except from the birth of Jesus uh, onward. He's never on the scene. It's likely thought that Joseph had died and wasn't there, but Jesus and his brothers are always there. And Mary's counting on her oldest son to round up her, his youngest brothers, to help do something for this family or friend who's married and is about to be uh, ashamed at this moment. But then you read Jesus' words to her, and you are appalled. You are appalled. In verse 4, Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? And you just read that first word, and you're just like, no, he did not. Uh, that's our American culture. Just let me say quickly, uh, Jesus said something very similar from the cross though, woman, behold your son. And if we love that phrase when Jesus calls his wife woman from the cross, why would we then introspect and say that here it's just like a abrupt title and meaning? No, it's probably better that he's saying, ma'am what does this have to do with me? It's not my hour in this moment. To us, we're appalled by the term woman there, but Jesus is very respectful in this, and yet he is making a dividing line, um, trying to say, I am your son in one sense, but I'm going to have to be your savior in another sense. You can't count on me as your son always. I am about not just our family mission. I'm about a kingdom mission. I have begun my ministry, and I'm about to do something way greater for these disciples than what you want me to do for this wedding. Though I'll do it for the wedding, I'm really doing something even more significant for my disciples. And so he says, what are, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not come, yet come. My hour has not yet come is a breadcrumb of sorts, Uh, an Easter egg in a movie, if you will, of those little hidden images and and figures in the movie that kind of keep the story going and give you little glimpses of what's to come and little details that you may not realize until you get to the end of the movie and then you go back and watch it again and you see all those glimpses. Well, this is a breadcrumb in literature the Apostle John, inspired by the Holy Spirit, um, b- pulling us along with breadcrumbs. My hour has not come yet. Jesus' hour always refers to His crucifixion and His exaltation. And Jesus is saying here, it's not my hour to reveal my glory in the crucifixion and, and resurrection and exaltation of who I am in this moment. And we see that word and that phrase carried on throughout the Gospel of John, even all the way up to, you know, 12.23 and even 13.1, uh, where Jesus finally says, it is my hour, it is my time. And then in 17.1, where he says that it is his hour, as he prays his last prayer with his disciples and he is about to go out and be arrested, he says, it is my hour, my hour has now come. But he's saying here, it's, it's not my hour. It's not the time that I'm to do this. And yet Mary looks over at him uh, in verse 5. He looks over at his servants, uh, at the servants of the wedding, and says, do whatever he tells you. Uh, she trusts that he will do something, even if it's not as a son simply providing help in this wedding situation. He's going to do something. And she tells the servants to do whatever he tells them to do. And it's at that point that uh, John gives us some details of what's happening at this wedding. In verse 6, now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Six stone water jars, not clay pots or vessels that uh, if were dirtied or made unclean would have to be destroyed, but stone water jars that were hewed out for this very purpose, for ceremonial cleansing and purification. And purification has been highlighted in John up to this point with John the Baptist baptizing people. Now, not that baptizing one uh, washes away one's sins, but faith in a God whom one is baptized in is the one who washes away our sins. But there were these stone jars there for purification, for likely washing hands and washing feet as these wedding guests would have come in. and uh, They were empty at that point because everyone had come. Everyone was there. The wine was gone. The ceremonial washing water was gone, and the vessels were empty, and these vessels held 20 or 30 gallons. So 120 or 180 gallons of potential water. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. Fill. And that that word describes up to the brim. Overflowing with water, which we'll speak about more in a little bit. Fill these jars with water. And these servants, it says that they filled them up to the brim. They did just as Jesus said. Maybe thinking, okay, Jesus is, maybe he's not going to worry about the wine. Maybe he's going to worry about washing of hands and feet and, you know, something else. In verse 8, it says that he said to them then, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. Now put yourselves in the shoes of the servants. The mother of Jesus, telling the servant, do whatever he says. And then Jesus saying, go fill these jars with water to the brim. What has that to do with wedding, with wine at this wedding? Okay, they go and do it. They fill them up. And now, Jesus says, now take some of that to the master of the feast, the, the ceremony, uh, master of ceremonies, the one who's in charge of all the food and all the wine and all of that. Imagine yourself in their shoes, think, is this some kind of practical joke? Are we on candid camera? Because, like, you want me to take ceremonial hand-washing and foot-washing water and serve it to the master of the feet? What in the world? I, I was thinking in my, myself, putting myself in their shoes, and I was just like, but this is no different than some of the... The things that God has called people to do in the past is think of God telling Abraham, take your son up on top of the mountain and sacrifice him. I'm sorry, what? Do you not just remember that you gave me this one son after like 20 years uh, after you promised me this son? Now you want me to, but he does it. Or even before that, God coming to Noah and saying, now I want you to build an ark. A what? (laughs) What's an ark? Uh, I've never seen rain before, but you want me to build a boat. Okay, but he does it. Uh, Or he goes to Moses, here's what I want you to do. I know that the armies of Egypt are behind you. I know that the Red Sea is before you. Here's what we're going to do. Hold your hands up and the waters will part. You just think about the crazy things in our eyes that the Lord has called men and women to do, and yet by faith, many of them do it, uh, and here these servants do it. They obey. They go and do some. And if you really pressed me and asked me, well, when did the water change to wine? I'm going to put... my guess, in those jars. Um, For if you think about the 120, 180 gallons of water there now turned to wine, what a significant gift that is. What a significant display that is. Uh, I did the math. I forgot it by now, but that's a lot of bottles uh, of wine. Uh, a lot of bottles of wine in, in that. And I, so I think as these servants are dipping out the water from these stone jars who have dipped out wine from other vessels to pour in glasses earlier in the day, they're now dipping this water out and all of a sudden it's a way deeper, darker red than the other wine that they had dipped out. And when they're dipping it out, it smells so much sweeter and fruitier than all of the other wine that they had scooped out at that moment. And and they take some of that wine to the the master uh, of the ceremonies. They stepped out in faith and and took this to him. And you get to this kind of climax moment uh, in verse 9, when the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine, and he did not know where it came from, though the servants who drew, had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. And you wonder, you know, like, you know, what, what's he going to say? What's he going to do? Is he going to ridicule the guy? Is, what's going to happen in this moment? And he gets to the bridegroom and said to him, verse 10, Everyone serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. The master of ceremonies goes to the groom and says, What in the world? I mean, this is some party. Instead of being embarrassed for having run out of wine, he's now risen to the top level of echelon saying, you didn't just run out of wine. You didn't happen to run out of wine, and you just didn't serve kind of the normal good wine first, bad wine. You served good wine, and now you've given us better wine. That's grace upon grace, as we saw Jesus described earlier in John chapter 1. And so he applauds the groom, and we get in this story the first sign of Jesus that he had done. The first sign of Jesus being God, being Messiah. In verse 11, this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee. And look at what John says he did in that moment and manifested His glory. And as a result, His disciples believed in Him. First of His signs, I would say, began to manifest His glory for His glory was not fully manifested in that moment. But a glimpse of who He was began to shine through in that moment. And His disciples believed. His disciples believed in Him. Believed even more so. And again, you can see the progression of their faith and every time Jesus revealing Himself and who He is and what He's done and what He's going to do, them believing more and more and more. And so when we're considering this, we, we have to ask our, ask ourselves the question, like, so what? So what that Jesus did this miracle? Is it just a party trick? I mean, is everyone else going to invite Jesus to their wedding after that, just in case? Or is this just a cool thing, like to prove that Jesus is God? Okay, he can change water to wine. I remember God changed water to blood in the past, so I guess Jesus is God. But I think there's, there, there's uh, even more to it. There's more significance if you will, to it. Remember, only Jesus, Savior, Creator, Messiah, can make us pure, give us faith, and restore our joy. So if you're taking notes as we've got through the story, consider this. Jesus is the Savior who makes us pure. By using these stone water jars of purification to change water into wine, Jesus was saying the Messiah had come out with the Old Covenant. And the law based ritual purification, and in with the new covenant and the grace based purification by faith. Jesus was filling them to the brim, overflowing with that, as He gives life and joy abundantly. Remember the grace upon grace from chapter 1, verse 16. He takes the old purification jars and fills them to the brim and brings life and joy that are only found in Him. This is why Jesus says in John chapter 15, after talking about grapevines and urging his followers to abide in him and they will bear much fruit, Jesus says, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Second Corinthians chapter 5, 17 the Apostle Paul says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. And countless times in the Gospels, Jesus says, you don't put new wine in old wine skins. Jesus came to bring a new, uh, uh, rather than the old, a new way of salvation through his body, and through his blood, uh, to make us pure. He is the Savior who makes us pure. But He's also the Creator who gives us life. Jesus shows that He's sovereign over creation. He's able to change water into wine. And in one sense, as one friend a couple years told me, that He was able to speed up the winemaking process by years. Thinking about water that fertilizes a seed in the soil and grows a vine that produces fruits that are then harvested and and crushed and fermented and and stored and saved and then poured into a glass. Jesus is sovereign over creation. But as I said earlier and that we would come back to it, uh, this is now the seventh day. And in fact the third day from the previous paragraph. And John started his gospel in the beginning. Just like Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning. I think John is hinting at the fact that Jesus is the creator and he's sovereign over creation. Genesis would tell us that God created light, that God created the skies, uh, light on the first day, that he created skies and the water on the second day, but on the third day, when he gathered the waters into one place. He also caused the earth to sprout up uh, in the other place. And from that earth, He caused all fruit-bearing plants to be born and to begin to bear much fruit uh, from that same dry ground. And here the same thing happens. Jesus, the Creator God, on this third day after the previous event, the seventh day of this new creation account, if you will, Jesus gathers the water together in jars and changes it to what only dry ground and plants can produce, grapes which produce wine. And you remember what, G, what God said after the third day of creation that he didn't say after the sec, first and second day? It is good. And what does this master uh, of ceremonies come and tell the groom regarding the wine? It is good. is good wine. Jesus is the creator. He is sovereign over creation. He is the one that gives life. And as we'll see in John chapter 3 with Nicodemus, he's the one that gives new life. For you must be born again to enter the kingdom of heaven. But not only is he the savior who makes us pure, Jesus is the creator who gives us life. And Jesus is also the Messiah who restores our joy. Earlier in John, the Jews were sent to Jesus to ask him, Are you Elijah? Are you Moses? Are you the prophet? Are you one of the prophets who did all of these miraculous signs in the past? And and Jesus says, No, I'm not Moses. No, I'm not Elijah. But in a sense, he was the prophet that Deuteronomy 18 promised would come. Um, and he would have signs and miracles like Moses and Elijah that would affirm who he is uh, and what he says and what he says he would do. if we think back to the story of the Old Testament, sadly, Adam and Eve didn't get to enjoy the fruit of the garden, the wine of the garden for very long since they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and were kicked out of the garden. And by God's grace, he promised Abraham a land offspring and a blessing. But as Israel would come to find out, though God would make good on His promise in the end, He would discipline His people in the meantime for their own sin. So when you get to periods of discipline in Israel's history, like the exile in Babylon, they are characterized by a lack of wine. However, the promise of a coming Messiah would make good on God's promises that was characterized by an abundance of wine. Graham and I are studying Isaiah a lot the past few weeks and this coming week for a preaching workshop, and it's in Isaiah that I've been that we find these verses describing the periods of discipline of Israel, The, the, the period when God is punishing them for their sin. In Isaiah chapter 24, verse 7, listen to the description. The wine mourns. The vine languishes. All the merry-hearted sigh. The mirth of the tambourines is stilled. The noise of the jubilant has ceased. The mirth of the lyre is stilled. No more do they drink wine with singing. Strong drink is bitter to those who drink it. The wasted city is broken down, every house is shut up that none can enter. There is an outcry in the streets for a lack of wine. All joy has grown dark, the gladness of the earth is banished." If there was ever a passage written 700 years before the wedding of John chapter 2 to describe the wedding of John chapter 2, it'd be that one. But that was describing Israel in the periods when they were being disciplined because they didn't trust in the Lord that they were characterized by a lack of wine. And so here Jesus shows up to a wedding that's about to seem more funeral-ish than a wedding because they've run out of wine. There won't be much singing any longer if there's no more wine at the wedding. They'll go find it somewhere else. And Jesus changes water to, to wine and all of the so- sudden the music kicks up higher, the singing sings even louder, They begin passing out more drinks, even better wine at this wedding. And so when Isaiah one chapter later begins to describe uh, the description of what it will look like when the Messiah shows up, listen to Isaiah chapter 25, verse 6 through 9. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. And He will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, praise God. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, as we sang this morning. And the reproach of the people He will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for Him that He might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for Him. Let us be glad and rejoice in His salvation. Multiple different prophetic books in the Old Testament would say that wine is one of the signs uh, of the Messiah, the rejoicing that comes from a people that enjoy good wine. And here Jesus shows up and says, I'm here. I'm the Messiah. I'm the one you've been waiting for. Will you look to me and say, and rejoice and say, the Lord is here. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Jesus is the Messiah they were waiting for who restored their joy. Maybe your joy needs to be restored this morning. And you've never looked to Jesus Christ who is the only Savior, the only Creator, and the only Messiah worth looking to. I urge you to look to Him to find your joy restored even if your water is not turned to wine this afternoon. He would give you joy in the midst of that season. And Christian, you who know the joy of the Lord oh too well from Him saving you from sin and death and yet have begun seeking joy elsewhere other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Look back to Jesus, your Messiah, who alone will restore our joy. But there's even more in this. Jesus shows up at a wedding. Jesus is, in addition to those things, the groom who prepares His bride. As I said, God is the groom of Israel in the Old Testament, and yet the Old Testament describes Israel cheating on God, committing adultery on God and going away from Him, and yet the Lord is compassionate and gracious uh, and will pursue that bride. and show His love and grace and mercy to that bride, and even restoring the relationship with Him. We can find some of this even in Isaiah as well. Isaiah chapter 54, verses 5 through 8. For your Maker, Creator, is also your Husband. The Lord of hosts is His name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of the youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment, I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. Jesus shows up at this wedding to show that He is the groom of the bride, God's people. In the Old Testament, Israel, true Israel, but in the New Testament, the true Israel is the church. And that's why the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 5 uses marriage between a man and a woman to be the picture between the relationship of Christ and his bride, the groom Jesus Christ and his bride. And we see pictures of this throughout the Gospels and one of the uh, most challenging I think I read this week was from Luke chapter 12 verse 35 where uh, the apost- Luke the, the doctor here is writing these stories and these parables and Jesus urges. In Luke chapter 12, verse 35, "...stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. And be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast." The groom even. "...so that they may open the door to Him at once when He comes and knocks." And listen to this. "...when the servants are waiting for their master, the groom, to get home from his wedding to be able to serve him in that moment when he knocks. Listen to what happens. Verse 37, Blessed are those servants whom their master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he, the master, the groom, will dress himself for service and have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. Think about it. We're waiting and longing to see our Savior, our Creator, our Messiah in uh, the, the groom whom we are the bride of, we're waiting to, to see him one day when he returns, and we're ready to serve him on that day. But on that day when we see him, this parable says, blessed are those servants, for in that day we won't serve him. He'll dress for service to serve us. And in that moment, how undeserving we will feel to have uh, our feet washed like Peter felt, probably, that day when Jesus dressed for service and washed his feet, and we'll want to bow before him there at the throne and say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Revelation chapter 9, verse 6 through 9 describes that day when we will get to enjoy the wedding feast and the well-aged wine with our groom. And the new heavens and new earth in Revelation chapter 19 verse 6 speaks of the marriage supper of the lamb and John the apostle who writes the gospel of John says in verse 6 then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out notice it's not mourning uh not a.m. I, I mean, I mean sadness morning. It's not a funeral. There's much singing. There's a roar going on here. Praise and what are they saying? Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. And let us rejoice and exult and give Him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. John writes, for the lin- fine linen, is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, John writes, write this, blessed, same word as Luke 12, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Jesus is the groom who prepares his bride for the marriage supper of the Lamb you don't have to, and in fact, you cannot get yourself ready. He first has to wash you white as snow. And then as you follow close after Him, your righteous deeds are the fine linens that you are wearing in the end when you stand before the Lord Jesus Christ on that day, when He shows great compassion to us in that moment. But lastly, let me say, that we have hope in this because this is good news for all nations. Jesus is the light for the nations. If you remember, I said that in the very beginning of this story in John chapter 2, it happened at Cana in Galilee. And in verse 11, again, John notes that this first sign Jesus did at Cana in Galilee. And I wonder if you... Can remember a popular Christmas prophecy that mentions Galilee. One you probably read over December or one for sure that we read here as, as a church. Maybe Isaiah chapter 9 verse 1 and 2 where the prophet writes, but there will be no gloom for her, her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, and those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. We'll go on in verse six to have that famous Christmas verse, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. This is good news for us because this is not just available to the Jews who were at that wedding that day. This is available to all who would see Jesus as their savior, all who would look to Jesus as their creator. All would see Him as the Messiah, the Christ, the promised one that they've been waiting for. All who look to Jesus as the groom, them themselves being the bride of, of Christ. This is a light for all nations, for all who would come to Jesus as John portrays in this text, would find their hope in Him, would find salvation in Him. That's that's what makes this wedding significant. Because Jesus shows up and does the first of many signs. And it's not just a cool trick. He's revealing to us who he is. And he's worthy. He's worthy of all worship and all honor and all glory. And one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. It would be to your benefit. It would be to our benefit If you would bow your knee now, rather than having to bow it in submission and be departed from the Lord, separated from Him in in hell for all eternity, to bow the knee now to repent of your sins and believe in Christ, who alone is Savior, who alone is Creator, who alone is Messiah, who alone is the groom, who alone is the light for all nations, so that you could spend the rest of this life living for His name's sake, honoring Him, and bringing others into the fold as well. Uh, inviting them to, to run after the groom as the bride. To repent of their sins and believe in Him and find hope and salvation in Him. Let me encourage you, if you have yet to trust Christ as He's presented this morning in this text, that you would trust Him. That you'd repent of your sins and you'd believe in Christ alone for salvation. And for those of you who have trusted in Christ, and your realization for who He is has been deepened this morning, or maybe just simply reminded this morning of who Jesus is, come back to Christ to find your joy restored. Come back to Christ to be prepared to stand before Him one day. Uh, Come back to Christ and remember He's the one who saved you. You didn't save yourself as many waited for him to show up for hundreds and thousands of years and he finally came and lived and died and rose from the dead and he ascended to the right hand of God, we're now waiting for him again. And so look to Jesus and wait for him well and say, come Lord Jesus, knowing that on that day we'll get to enjoy the marriage supper of the Lamb. We'll get to eat and drink with Him. And Christian, we have an opportunity to remember that this morning. We have an opportunity to eat bread and drink juice that are a reminder to us of the body and blood of Christ. The wine, though, this morning should give us an even deeper appreciation for who Jesus is and what He's done knowing that one day we'll we eat this meal in remembrance of his death and we also, also, though, eat it looking forward to the future for a future better meal. And so let me encourage you, Christian, if you're here this day and you have repented of your sins, you've trusted this Christ alone to save you. You've followed him in baptism, Let me encourage you in a moment to stand with me and others and to uh, come down this aisle to break of the bread and to take the cup and together we will eat and drink in remembrance of Christ who died and rose from the dead but also looking forward to a better meal where we will feast and enjoy well-aged wine with Jesus Christ forever. Let's pray. Father, we bow before you humbled that you would send your one and only Son to be this for us, to do this for us. Jesus, thank you for leaving your throne in heaven, wrapping on flesh and enduring the discipline and punishment for the sin of all of those who would believe in you. Jesus, forgive us, for we have fallen short. Jesus, I thank you for the depth that we see, the significance that we see in this first sign of yours at this wedding. May it deepen our love and appreciation for you. May it cause us to sing louder with hands raised higher this morning to leave this place, being sent out to be the church in the world, aiming to live a life that honors and pleases you as only you deserve. Holy Spirit, would you help us this morning, revealing to us uh, these truths, revealing to us how we need to grow in likeness and righteousness, to live for your honor and your name's sake. Jesus, we praise you. And it's in your name that we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.